Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. In this episode of The Bell Tale, Bloody Friday. The explosions hit all parts of the city. On estimated of between three and four hundred pounds was left in a big... The 21st of July, 1972 in Belfast. This bomb had been hidden in a hijacked bread van in Botanic Garden. It had been parked outside a ballroom and office block by two men who carried trays of cakes into a butcher's shop. The IRA detonated 22 bombs in an hour and a half. They were just running blind. It was exploding a necklace of bombs all around the city. It was just devastation, complete devastation. And the buses were burning. And... It caused nine deaths. Yes, his body was blown to pieces. There was nothing. There was nothing to bring home. Had to get a special doctor down to try and make up his mind whether it was a male or a female. 130 people were injured. Waking up in a hospital bed with my mother and father, and the first thing I seen was a cage over my legs. And the fear, this total fear of uh, where are my legs? There wasn't a stitch on him. His body was just like a raw piece of meat. Some of the crew were given plastic bags and a shovel to go around collecting bits of bodies. Joining me to discuss the events of Bloody Friday is Belfast Telegraph columnist and writer Maliki O'Doherty, who was working as a journalist on the day, Belfast Telegraph reporter Neve Campbell, and military historian Aaron Edwards. So let's go back 50 years to the 21st of July, 1972, the most prolific day of bombings uh, during the Troubles. Neve, can you take us through what happened? Yes, yeah, so that morning, um, the provisional IRA put in um, hoax phone calls and they're saying now that they put in enough warnings and that it was the emergency services um, and the police that was their fault for not getting the warnings out quick enough and evacuating people in these areas quick enough. Um a lot of phone boxes that they had tried to put calls through, they they weren't working, but they were vandalised quite a lot back then. Um, so beginning at around, now reports do vary, but according to multiple reports, um, the first bomb uh, went off at 10 past two at Smithfield bus station. A lot of the bombs, overall there were 22 explosives, which within around 80 minutes went off, which is just insane to think. And, um, you know, reports as well say that they think around £2,000 of explosives went off in that time. Um, a lot of the bombs did go off at bus stations and train stations. 
Uh, it was actually two car bombs, though, that between them claimed the nine lives that died that year, uh, or during that day, one at the Oxford Street bus station in the city centre, and then the other was outside shops on the Cave Hill Road up in North Belfast. Um, now, 130 people were also injured and maimed as during that blitz, and obviously the, the emotional and mental trauma um, has taken a toll since in terms of mental health here. And Neve, tell us, who were the victims? At Oxford bus station, two soldiers died, 19-year-old Stephen Cooper and 27-year-old Philip Price, and they were killed alongside four Ulster bus workers. Um, Jackie Gibson was aged 45, Thomas Killips was 39, William Irvine was 18, and William Crothers was, was just 15 when he was working there. Up in Cave Hill, um, two Catholic women and a Protestant teenager, they were killed as well. So the bomb that went off at Cave Hill, it was in a religiously mixed area. Um, I'd say like a residential sort of shopping area. And one of the women that died, Margaret O'Hare, she was in her 30s. She was a mum of seven and her 11-year-old daughter was in the car with her when the bomb went off and she was also seriously hurt. So even just imagining the trauma of that wee girl going through that and then having her mother end up dead beside her as well. Bridget Murray, she was the oldest killed that day. She was 65. And then Stephen Parker was a Protestant 14-year-old. He died in the blast close to shops. Now, he was only 14. He was a very... He was a, he was a child. But he spotted the bomb. Mm-hmm. So he he had heard that there were bombs going off because the bomb... the the Cave Hill bomb was sort of one of the last ones to go off and he had heard about it and then he had seen uh, basically a suspect device in the back of a car. So he ran into a few shops to try and warn people um, and then he was caught up just as it went off, like right in the height of it. He, he really did die a hero. Um, his father was Reverend Joseph Parker. Um, one part I found really sad about this too, he was only able to identify Stephen's body at the mortuary because he had a box of trick matches in his pocket um, and then he was had been wearing a shirt and scout belt too. So the fact that he was obviously that maimed or unidentifiable, his dad couldn't even you know identify him and he was given last rites by a priest, I believe, at the scene and his father, uh, Reverend Joseph Parker, passed away in 2018. At the time, he had collected debris from the scene where Stephen had died and they had um, taken that and his ashes and formed it into a wee cross. And two years after Bloody Friday happened, his family moved to Canada, I suspect, just to get a new life away from all the, the chaos of the troubles and the bad memories. So whenever his dad did pass away four years ago, they sent his remains back home to be in, um, intertwined with that cross of Stephen as well, which I think is really lovely. Touch and tribute. Bloody Friday... Arden, I mean, from a military point of view, what happened, what went wrong, and what was the effect of Bloody Friday? I think you have to look at Bloody Friday in the context of what else was happening in Northern Ireland in a security sense. Uh, certainly, there was an escalation of um, IRA activity in, in terms of uh, shootings, bombings, um, disorder, on the streets uh, from 1971 onwards. There was a, a decision taken uh, by the IRA to escalate and uh, uh, various other events that sort of play into the scenario in the summer of 1972 include uh, internment from the year before. Um, they include uh, uh, Bloody Sunday uh, and, um, of course, a, a number of bomb attacks uh, throughout Northern Ireland. Um, and they represent a an escalation by the IRA, an attempt 
um, uh, to prove that um, they were not um, completely destabilized by internment. And in fact, uh, we, we now know that a number of key, key IRA leaders had escaped uh, the clutches of the security forces. So they survived to uh, fight another day. Um, and um, the IRA activity in the summer was certainly um, reaching a, a culminating point. Malachi, you were there. What do you remember of the day? I was working near here on the Sunday News in Donegal Street uh, in 1972. I was a junior reporter in my first job, so not very experienced. Uh, it was a year in which we frequently were evacuated from the office in bomb scares. We frequently heard bombs going off. Very often when you were out on a job somewhere, maybe in Tyrone or Fermanagh and coming back in the evening, you'd find the whole city uh deadlocked, you know, with uh, broken glass around the place, some street like North Street maybe completely trashed, people walking home because they couldn't get buses. Bloody Friday was unlike that in a way. It was it started at lunchtime. Um I was I was out on Royal Avenue with a colleague, Eddie Fleming, and it was a beautiful sunny day. Uh, I think we were probably both looking forward to the holidays. Uh, there had been a ceasefire by the IRA a couple of weeks earlier and uh, that had lifted everybody's spirits a bit, but that had passed and and we were aware that uh, the troubles were returning and there had been more violence. We were in a little shop on Royal Avenue and we were leaving the shop and walking back down Royal Avenue towards Donegal Street when we heard the first bomb. We didn't know exactly where it was. Um, and it didn't particularly surprise us, I suppose. Uh, normally, if, if you were in a, the city today and you heard a bomb, you would be freaked out by it completely, I suppose. Uh, we were well used to them by then. And uh, as we got further back to closer to the office, we heard uh, at least one more bomb and then had a sense that things were, were getting a bit dramatic. We got back into the office, and this was this is a back office within the newsletter building, so it didn't front on to Donegal Street, it was more uh, to the back around Talbot Street. And there were other journalists there, and they were in a bit of a flap trying to work out what was happening, making calls, and, uh, and we could hear more bombs. And uh, people were getting very, very nervous indeed. And a decision was taken to evacuate us all down below uh, to the print room. There was this massive space at the back of the newsletter where they printed the paper at that time. And on the way down, um, uh, a journalist turned to me and said, are you okay, Malik? Are you frightened? Because he must have seen my face, you know, that I was appalled. And of course, being a, a young man wanting to be uh, up here on top of things, I said I wasn't, but I, but I was. And uh, we passed on the stairs an office where some girls worked, I don't know exactly what the job was, but one of them had worked with the Milk Marketing Board in the previous year and had been in that building at the time that it was bombed. So she was having, she was traumatized by that and she was being carried screaming out of her office. We went down the stairs and we were all assembled in the, in the print room. And I was uh, standing with Stephen Riley, who was a Canadian, who was a journalist uh, working with us at that time. and. Um, Stephen was very cool, very blasé, and he gave me a nudge and looked up, raised his eyes up, and we looked up and above us, and above us was this kind of serrated 
factory ceiling, you know, that type of a roof that uh, like saws teeth, you know, the, the little triangles jutting up, and, and each one had a skylight. So we were standing, you know, if a bomb was to go off outside, we would have been shard by glass from it. And you're thinking to yourself, what do I do? Do we just say to everybody, hang on, we're totally mad standing here, let's get out of here. And, and you don't want to be the one who makes an exception of things, and, and so we didn't say it. We, after a while, the, uh, the bombing stopped and uh, we got some kind of an all clear and went back upstairs to our offices to try and piece things together for the paper. And uh, my phone rang and it was Jerry O'Hare. And Jerry O'Hare was the PR officer for the Belfast Brigade of the Provisional IRA. And the first thing I said to him was, what the fuck was that all about? You know, And I was as blunt as that. And uh, Jim reached over and took the phone off me and covered the mouthpiece with his hand so Jerry wouldn't hear. He says, don't be talking to people like that. You know, I suppose the journalistic instinct was preserve your sources, you know, don't break connections with people. But uh, my impulse wasn't a journalistic impulse. It was just a human impulse uh, to say, who the hell do you people think you are doing that to us, you know? And... Uh, so that was, uh, the, the afternoon passed, I wrote whatever I was writing, I can't remember what it was, and as was often the case, I went to Kelly Sellers for a drink after work, and we were in Kelly Sellers, and there were various other, the Kelly Sellers was a bar which attracted, uh, well, young people, many of them young activists in people's democracy, the official Republican movement. Uh, I didn't think there were many provisionals there, but, but there maybe were. There were occasionally, you would talk to somebody who would say they were provisional. But anyway, so I was there when the six o'clock news came on, and the six o'clock news uh, showed the footage from Oxford Street bus station, uh, and we saw the image of the fireman shoveling uh, flesh. It was like meat off a slab in a butcher shop, but shoveling this flesh, uh, you know, and gathering it up at uh, Oxford Street bus station. And people in the bar laughed at it. I couldn't believe it. People in the bar were watching this on TV and they were laughing. And I don't know how they would rationalise their laughing. Uh, I would make any attempt to rationalise it myself because it was so contemptible. But the simple fact of the matter is that there were people in the bar watching that on TV and they laughed at it. Over the years, I've met uh, other people who were there and who told me stories about their own experiences. Um, I... A fireman told me, he said to me, have you noticed that the fireman in that footage who's shoveling the flesh is in the dress uniform? And I said, well, yes, well, okay, what does that mean? And it means that he graduated that day. That fireman was 18 years old and he had just come from a passing out parade having graduated as a fireman. On the day, with so many warnings coming through, so many hoaxes, etc., etc., I mean, how confusing was it for the army on the day? I think one of one of the key um, points for me about uh, Bloody Friday um, is actually the interviews I've done with Republicans um, who said that they had phoned in uh, warnings or they had attempted to phone in warnings, and that some. Uh, some phone boxes were vandalized, uh, they claim. Um, communications for the army and between the army and the police were not that sophisticated. So there were problems there in communicating between the security forces at the time. I, I don't think we should underestimate the 
um, the the lack of everyday communication at that time, and the you know that people had to rely upon um, telephones, um, and that the radio equipment really wasn't that um, well suited in a built up sort of environment. So um, I think that there were um, the, the, there was a lack of communication, um, but um, primarily it's to do with the intent of the IRA, uh, and uh, there's dispute over whether or not the IRA actually wanted to provide warnings or whether it was um a, you know a decisive attempt by the ira to send a message to the british government of course they had been in talks with the british government earlier that year so it can be seen as a, as a way of sending a message which all terror groups um do so by targeting um it, soft targets by targeting um populations uh, concentrated uh, numbers of people in built up areas there's only going to be one outcome uh, and uh, and no matter you know how sophisticated the response by the authorities i think that it was down to the ira um you know who could have get, given a more adequate warning of course they they didn't and these things exploded with intensity around the city in such a confined space within a mile's radius i mean it's not it's it's very difficult i think for people to understand what that would look like we do have video footage we, you know, from the time, um, but I think the intensity of it and the fear was what the IRA really wanted to try and try and um, generate from from its activities on that day. So, in terms of what they were trying to achieve from their own point of view, I mean, clearly it doesn't seem to be in any way a military operation. Was it to create anarchy? What you know, you said it to make a point. Uh, was it to d- harm the economy how did they rationalize it well it has bloody frankly uh, fitted into a pattern of uh, city center bombing which had been continuous you know all that year so in a sense to look at bloody friday and say what specifically was that all about um might be a mistake you know it might be a mistake to say this had a particular relevance or a particular relation uh, to to events in the background uh, essentially it fitted in with a pattern of uh, of city center bombing now that bombing has been that pattern has been rationalized I mean, I do remember Brendan Hughes, for instance, once saying that uh, the uh, the point about the attacks on commercial targets uh, was to demonstrate, in a sense, propagandistically, uh, that that the army and the state were more concerned about protecting property in the city centre than they were about protecting civilians in areas like Bella Murphy and, and Andersonstown. Um, you know, I've not heard that argument put by anybody else, but in a sense, it was, you know, the, it was possibly also just an effort to pull uh, military resources away from those housing estates where the IRA was was forming its own was was basically establishing its organization and uh, in safe houses and 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 so on so soldiers who would be pulled away to deal with uh, bombings in the city center wouldn't be searching for arms dumps in in Riverdale or or Lenadoon. um and it may just have been a, a, a determination to demonstrate the survival of the IRA and the energy of the IRA. Um, it also may have had something to do with the fact that uh, that people who had been released for the sake of the ceasefire to negotiate the ceasefire were now back in leadership positions within the IRA. So it may have been part of their thinking that we should have a big showcase day, show piece 
bombing extravaganza to demonstrate uh, how, how dangerous we are. And, as you said, the 22 bombs went off, nine people lost their lives, many, many people were injured and huge uh, damage to property. What was the security force reaction to that? Well, the security force reaction, as, I, as I've said, the, um, it, it was a struggle between the security forces and the IRA to try and prevent an escalation. Um, in order to do that decisively, the, the London government had the order uh, an effective response to um, Bloody Friday. Bloody Friday is a is a tipping point. In many respects, uh, it it has been overshadowed by other events such as Bloody Sunday and internment. But actually, um, in a strategic sense for the British government in terms of policy, uh, it was a tipping point, uh, and uh, and then it authorised the British Army to ramp up its operations to smash the no-go areas in Belfast and Derry. Um, primarily, but also um, by deploying masses, a mass amount of troops um, that had not been seen before. So as I've said, a small small number um, had been built up steadily over time um, to, um, you know, over 20,000 troops then deployed uh, across uh, the province to uh, effectively respond to that violence. Um, and on the day, of course, of, of Operation Motorman, um, the, the military's largest operation since the end of the Second World War. And we have the Claudie uh, bomb attacks. And, uh, uh, but, and again, um, uh, it's important to, to see the army's operations as um, you know, the government ordering them to, to take effective action against the IRA, to smash these no-go areas, to effectively extend the writ uh, of British rule and uh, law and order. Uh, and um, it was um, largely successful. So Operation Motorman, with the exception, of course, of the IRA's um, attempt to try and um, distract from, from that, uh, it, it did um, deal a decisive blow against the IRA and its ability to mount those large-scale operations. I mean, in a sense, it's perhaps a very lightweight view of history, but it is often said that Bloody Friday harmed the IRA. It, it, did it? Did it? Or did it not? I don't think Bloody Friday harmed the IRA. I don't think Bloody Friday harmed the IRA. I mean, and I think that is one of the shocking lessons of the whole Troubles experience, because how do you explain that? One way to possibly explain it is to say that there was this huge popular support for the IRA, but there wasn't. You know, I mean, if anything, there, you know, the, the, you know, the support for the IRA that was, that was, uh, you know, that was managed through the peace process, you know, grew massively when the IRA stopped uh, bombing and when when the peace process took off and the ceasefires came. They, there, was, it was, there was no Sinn Féin political organisation of note at the time, although there was nominally. Um, there was, uh, the SDLP was a much bigger political party representative of the, of the Catholic community. But... The expectation that, you know, that the Catholic community could somehow um, coherently and of its own volition uh, disown uh, the IRA or expel the IRA from its communities was, was just a just a fanciful notion. It was never it was never going to be a possibility. Uh, people were going to endure this rather than, uh, than than stand up and reject it. And even a few years later, when they did stand up and reject it through the peace people, you know, divisions were easily sown within that. 
So, so I think there's an analysis to be done, if you like, about the relationship between the IRA and the Catholic community, uh, which uh, has to take into account the fact that um, the IRA was capable of such a level of callous slaughter uh, without any consideration of, of who the targets were or who the people who would die were and was still able to get away with it. You know, and the people who were in the very leadership of of the movement at that time we ordered that uh, were were in time uh, respected almost as political celebrities. Neve, nineteen seventy two was the bloodiest year of the troubles. How many people died in that year? By the end of the year, almost five hundred, so four hundred and ninety six people had been killed, and two hundred and fifty eight of them were just regular civilians. And that's. That's a considerable percentage of the people who died overall in the Troubles who died in that one one year. 1972 is what we must never go back to. 1972 was the year of chaos. That is the period in which there was the most intense bombing of the city centre, uh, bombing of pubs and the sectarian bombings of McGurk's Bar, of the four-step in and the Shankill and so on. In a sense, all the elements of the Troubles because there were hunger strikes in the prison as well. All the elements of the troubles from hunger striking, ceasefiring, peace processing, city centre bombing, sectarian bombing, sectarian killings in back alleys, um, uh, all of that uh, is contained within that one year. It is, in a sense, a kind of, uh, you know, embodiment or, or microcosm of, of the whole period, and it is the absolute worst part of the whole period. So it's a year of everything going horribly wrong, uh, awfully badly and a year in which you begin to see through negotiations between the British and Irish governments an attempt to understand and and manage this and when you go back as I have done for my book and read the documentation of the the security service reports and analyses of what was happening the dialogue between the Irish government and the British government you see a, a real failure to understand the thing and you see the beginnings of people who have a very poor handle in events beginning to think the ideas that would lead ultimately towards a peace process 25 years later. Aaron, Neve, Malachy, thank you. This episode of The Bell Tale was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar, sound designed by Graham Davidson. The clips were from UTV, the BBC, AP, RTE and British Pathé. When you get an Irish independent digital subscription, you don't just get access to the news at your fingertips. For a limited time, you'll also receive a €75 O'Neill's gift card. So what are you waiting for? Get the whole kit and caboodle. Visit independent.ie forward slash subscribe today. Irish independent. Terms and conditions apply.